This is the Hofstra Radio Alumni Audio Yearbook. Today is March 13th, 2022. Please tell us your name and the years you were at Hofstra Radio. Uh, my name is John Baker, and I was at Hofstra from 1989 to 93 and spent all four years at the radio station as well. Did you have any uh, titles or positions of management while you were there? <sighs> yeah, I had a few. Um, at one point, I was news director. I want to say that it was around 9091. Had no business having that title, but that's what I was. We'll get <laughs> we'll get into that later. Um, I was also producer or director, I forget what we, titles we used, of the Rock and Roll Oasis when mm -hmm. that launched. Um, and was also one of the people who started and produced a show called Whiplash, which at that time was the first heavy metal show on WRHU. Okay. I, because we were there at the same time, I had this memory of you being chief announcer. Did I make that up? Oh, God, no. Have you heard my voice? No. No. <laughs> Definitely not. I, I have, and and I would not be surprised, but okay, no, I, no. I, I made that up. I mean, right. it, unless you're remembering something that I don't, I that does not ring a bell at all. No. Okay. So. But thank you. That's, I'm flattered. <laughs> that, that, that's that's fine. Um, so you mentioned Whiplash and the Rock and Roll Oasis. What other shows did you work on while you were at Hofstra Radio? You know, I, I, not that many, honestly. I, I don't know how I pulled that off. Um, I did some airwave here or there and probably some of the public access stuff when I was you know, doing the training wheels stuff that we all did. Mm. Um but I never did like the classics. I never did the weekend shows. I did most of my stuff during six to eleven or six to one. Uh, during how the did you get? How did you get away with that? I, that's a good question. I don't know. I, I think I just I, I had my ins with the right people, and um, I just I, I worked those angles, and so somehow I didn't I didn't do polka. Uh, <laughs> again, I don't know how. I know a lot of people did, um, and I'm not saying that's a good thing or a bad thing. It's just that's that's how it worked out. So, okay, uh, all right. Well, we'll have to do some investigating later. You may owe us a classics shift all right, or two. All right, I'll see what I can do. In retrospect, know. sure. Um, so, two part question here. Answer it as makes sense to you. But I'm always curious what first brought people to the radio station, and then when you got there, what was it like? Where was it? Do you remember meeting anybody in particular? Do you remember stuff about the uh, the office or the studios, things that stuck out in your memory? Yeah. So when I was in high school, we're going way back now. Mm -hmm. um, but back then I had a lot of interest in music. Um, being a kid in the eighties, being really into heavy metal, there was, if you remember, that was, that was a scene, that was a culture, that was a thing. Mm -hmm. um, so I was really into that. Um, I grew up in a household where music was really important, um, constantly on, um, my parents, in fact, they were at Bob Dylan's first concert where he went electric at the Newport folk festival. Wow. Okay. So wow. Peter, Paul and Mary, Bob Dylan, uh, Joan Baez, like a lot of that stuff was played at my house when I was a kid. 
So I was really immersed in, in, in music overall and just had a, a lot of interest in it. And I, and I knew in high school, like I wanted to, that was where I wanted to go. What did that mean at that time? I had no idea. Was that journalism? Was it broadcasting? Was it touring with bands? Was it working at a record label? You know, I, I wanted to explore. I just, I, wh- whatever path it went down, that was fine. But I knew music had to be a part of that. Mm. And where I grew up, um, it, it, Providence, Rhode Island, and it's in the on the east side, which is basically in the shadows of Brown University. And Brown at that time had its own radio station, um, WBRU. So, and it was not just broadcast on campus, you could get it outside of campus. So we were exposed to, you know, the stuff you would think of back then, the replacements, Hmm. REM before they became REM, U2 before they became U2, um, I, in fact, I remember both of those bands playing Brown University um, wow. on campus. So there was that, and, and there's there's a street that runs along where Brown is called Fair Street. The heart of it's about four or five blocks. And that was essentially our Greenwich Village before it became overrun by Starbucks and national Mm. chain stores. So it was like a counterculture bohemian place, right? Um, Four or five independent record stores, like again, within four or five blocks. So you got exposed to all kinds of stuff, punk music, alternative music, rap, metal, whatever was happening at that time. It all lived there. So, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm getting into a lot of detail here, but I just, I was exposed to so much stuff and I just, I loved the culture of music. I loved the scene, just everything about it, what it meant to people politically, what it meant to people just socially, all of that. Right. So when I started looking at schools, that was always in the back of my mind. Like I said, I wanted to go in, into, into music in some capacity, even though I couldn't play an instrument worth a lick. Hmm. Um, my junior year of high school, I was dating a girl who was a senior who had to do an internship as a requirement for graduation. And and she did an internship at a radio station in Providence, um, WHJY. And they were the big rock station at the time. So whenever bands would come to town and I'm talking about like mainstream stuff. So whenever bands would come to town, they would stop there for interviews. Um, the station had its its morning show, which is where she did most of her internship. Um, there's a woman by the name of Car- Carolyn Fox who was the morning DJ, and she essentially was groundbreaking in that she was the first like female shock jock. In fact, she got mm-hmm. on national news for some prank that she pulled on the city of Providence um, <laughs> back in the 80s. Um, so it was really cool that she got this internship there, and so that kind of exposed me to, hmm, Radio, interesting. And I was a shy, kind of introverted kid to some respect. Um, So I didn't see myself as a broadcaster per se, but this kind of intrigued me about maybe looking at radio. So when I was a senior, did an internship at that same radio station and um, got to experience that. So again, when I started looking at schools, that was something I was looking for. It needed to have a radio station where I could work at. So I had it nailed down to Ithaca and Hofstra. 
Hmm. And I love both. Um, loved Ithaca more just because if you've ever been to Ithaca, New York, it's it's beautiful and kind of what I had envisioned what college life would look like. Like that was it. Mm-hmm. Um, but it's upstate New York, right? And what I liked about Hofstra was it was a major market. I was a train ride away from New York City. So if I wanted to do internships at record labels, if I wanted to go to concerts and just be a part of the New York scene, obviously it was just so much closer. So I ended up picking Hofstra. Um, so I, I started there uh, the fall of 89. Can, can I double back for a second? Because yep. uh, being a Long Islander myself and living 15, growing up 15 minutes away from Hofstra, it was just something that was always there. And I'm always curious how people from out of state found Hofstra. Was it was it a guidance counselor or someone who said, "Oh, here's a here's a school with a radio station"? Or how'd you find it in a, in the mm. pre-internet days? Yeah. So college fairs, things like that. It, I don't know. It, it might have been. I know it was. Um, do you remember the the that book we used to get of the book of schools, basically, or yeah, something yeah. like that? I believe I found it there. And, um, I remember you could sort the book by what schools had like strong communications departments, what schools had strong engineering departments or whatever, you know, that kind of thing. Okay. So I have to imagine I found it that way, but I I don't have a real, real clear recollection of that, but that's gotta be it. So, okay. But, but, but you found it and you decided, uh, the proximity to Manhattan was more attractive than the idyllic Ithaca College setting. Yeah, yeah. I, for what I wanted to do in life at that point, definitely. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So, so you show up at at Hofstra in the in the fall of '89, yep. right? Mm-hmm. And when did you decide to go down to the station, or or were, were there flyers? Was there a meeting? What happened? So there was. Uh... And I was involved in these when I was in the radio station, but they'd have an open house. Yeah. And if I'm remembering correctly, uh, Dave Fawpel, who you may remember, he was mm-hmm. at one point the morning host at yep. uh, RHU. He and I were roommates. So, and we both had similar interests. Um, a little different, but we both wanted to work at the, at the radio station. So I, I think we both went down there for the open house. And there was a tour. And there was also like this, I'll call it an audition. It wasn't if you failed the audition, you were kicked off the island sort of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but it just sort of a, a way to, for you to test the waters, I guess. Am I Am I made for this? Do I want to do this? And that included doing a reading. And I, I remember this vividly. Um, mm-hmm. And I'm not going to do um, the Jeff Krause voice impression. Um, I think just like Morgan Freeman, when you hear Jeff Krause saying something, or when, if I say what Jeff Krause said to me, you're going to hear his voice in your head, right? For, the, right. for those who knew him. But he was there, and anyone who remembers him, he was this very dapper, bearded man, glasses, usually wearing a, a blazer and probably an ascot, right? Like that kind of kind of look to him. And he just had this baritone voice and this presence about him. 
And so there was a line of people to do this reading. And I remember getting into the studio and this was the studio that was behind the main studio. What was that? The, was that the two track? There was the multi-track and the two track. Okay. So it was one of those, right? And I have my copy and I start reading. Now I'm 18, naive kid, just first time away from home. And Jeff is behind the glass manning the board. And I start my reading and I'm, I'm looking down at the papers I'm reading. And all of a sudden I see the light go on, which what that meant was that the person on the other side was now speaking into their mic to talk to you. And so I hear Jeff Krause say to me, and I'm going to say son. He, I don't know if he said son, but it sounds like something <laughs> he would say. Um, son, if you're going to make it in this business, you're going to have to lose that awful New England accent. Oh. <laughs> oh. And I look at him and first I'm like, I knew I did not have great pipes. So I was not really that offended by that. I was more, how does he know I'm from New England? Again, naive, <laughs> stupid 18-year-old kid, right? So I say that to him, like, how, do you, how did you know I'm from New England? And he just, I think he was like looking at me like over his glasses and he hits the, the mic again and says to me, I've been in this business a long time. So that was my first exposure to that, but it didn't turn me off at all. Um, and, you know, I, I think even at that point, I, I didn't see myself as an on-air personality. I wanted to do more of like the behind the scenes stuff, produce shows, run shows, whatever, what have you. Um, and even at that point, I still didn't know what, what all that meant, but I just, in my head, I think that's what I was sort of leaning towards. Um, so I just, you know, from then you did your engineering course, your announcing course, um, you tracked your hours. So you worked with different shows, different people to, to get those hours and then eventually get on the air. Um, but despite my, my intro with Jeff Krause, I, I still was very psyched to get involved and, and wanted to, was eager to. You, you are right. I can, I can hear the voice <laughs> yeah. in my head. Right. Now, what I really want to hear, mm -hmm. and I don't know if you can sum this up, but but can you bring back that Rhode Island, that roadie accent? I can't. It's gone. It is absolutely gone. And that's now, because of, of my four years at RHU. There's no doubt. Well, that, that leads me into the next set of questions. As you mentioned, tracking and engineering classes and announcing classes. Do you remember who your announcing teacher was? Because um, there's, there's like uh, courses for credit that are university courses. And then yeah. there's the, the station training from when we were there. Right. Do you remember anything about that? Do you remember them saying, you need to pronounce your R's? Do you need to pronounce or, or say this this way? Yeah, I... I... I don't remember who taught what. I, 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 from the engineering side, correct me if I'm wrong here, but I, Sue Zizza ran that. Does that sound right? That that's possible. There was there was the Com Twenty One course, which was the basic production. That was probably it. Hofstra course that she taught. Yeah. Okay. Um, but then there were then there were usually student led courses so whoever the chief engineer or chief announcer at the time would have been right would have run those right but uh, i'm imagining at some point someone pulled you aside and said uh here here's this here's this letter in the alphabet it's yeah. an r and yeah. Yeah. this is how you say it yeah i i couldn't say park my car now that's more more, more boston <laughs> but still right. um similar right um, I do remember the emphasis on W, of course. Mm -hmm. um, I think everyone remembers that. But um, I don't really have solid memories of 
who taught what. Um, I, I mean, I certainly remember applying what I learned in the engineering sessions. I mean, again, this was pre-digital. Right. This is old bastard radio we're talking about, where you recorded things on reel-to-reel and sometimes multiple times. And I remember the little tracker on the on the reel to reel where you would pull the tape down and splice it with a with a razor blade. You'd use that, what was it, the ink pen you would use to mark where you wanted to make the edit your, and your grease pencil. Grease pencil. That's it. Okay. Um so I remember applying that knowledge. And I don't think everyone got the chance to do that. I think a lot of people would do radio shows and perhaps it was more just manning the board and spinning vinyl records and playing CDs and not necessarily like creating something. Right. Right. Um, But going back to whiplash, I remember when we got the show on the air, um, we didn't really have, we were part of the rock show, whatever it was at that time. And it was no real segue. It was like, okay, so now for the next hour, we're going to play metal music. Here you go. Right. And I think we had some bed music or something, but we needed, when the show really started to take off, we needed like a solid intro. We needed something that transitioned from one type of music to another, right? And so I was involved with both Denise and Kathy at this point with the show. Mm-hmm. And I had this idea of this intro. So bear with me here, and, and you may remember it, but... I, I came to them like, hey, I have this idea. And it was like this like cityscape sounds, right? Hustle and bustle mm-hmm. of a city. And the sound of a bomb just falling through the sky. People screaming. And then this explosion. And then bed music, right? <laughs> You're laughing. So uh, uh, do you remember, remember it? it? Okay. I All do. Right. All right. I do. All right. So I brought that to them. They're like, yeah, all right. That sounds cool. Let's do it. So we booked time in one of the multi-track, the multi-track studio. I'm imagining it was like a weekend. I might be wrong, but but in that session, all of those skills that we learned, we applied. I mean, we did all of this recording of stuff, finding sound effects. That scream, that was Kathy. And I think she got it on the first take. And I hope she did because it was she had to do that more than twice i think she would have blown out her her vocal cords but um and then the bed music we ended up picking a song by uh i had to look this up before we did this just to refresh my memory but um a band called dri who were sort of like a crossover thrash band um a song called uh, don't ask and so I remember us putting the whole thing together and it was just what I just described, right? Like we're recording stuff, we're splicing it, we're, oops, we taped the tape upside down at one point, had to correct it and just doing all that stuff. And once we had the finished product, we were really excited about it. It sounded great. Um, so like it's, and also, you know, with Whiplash, you would get songs where there were dirty words that we wanted to play mm-hmm. and we couldn't play them unless we edited them. So we would do that. We would record them and then flip over the, the Falker dish. And so that way it would sound like something else um, and get away with playing it on the air. 
So applying that knowledge was something I definitely remember, but I don't necessarily remember the course themselves. Hmm. Um, do you remember getting on the air the first time, either behind the board or behind the mic? Um, not, not really specifically, but I'm sure first time I was on the air was probably reading news, right? right. Pulling stuff off the wire and just reading that. I, again, I didn't, at that point, I don't think I really saw myself as, as someone being on the air, I wanted to do more behind the scenes stuff, but that changed over time. And so obviously, and, and got more on the air as far as running the board and, and doing that sort of thing. Um, first time, no, but it was probably with John Booty, I would say hmm. he and I were both New England kids. So we kind of had that, that bond. Um, and he was a super nice guy, always willing to help out. Right. And, um, I think I did a lot of my tracking with him. Hmm. And so I probably ran the board for his show. And I I would assume that's probably when I first got my real experience being behind the board. So you, you've mentioned a a couple of times here and, and I don't know if you're just being too hard on yourself or not, but that you weren't necessarily interested in being on the air or you weren't, you know, convinced you had great radio pipes, but were you, were you excited to be on the air? Were you nervous? Was it just like, Oh, I've got to do this to get to the other thing. Was it a means to an end? Good question. Um, I think, I, I think like all of us, the first time you're on the air, you're extremely nervous, right? Mm-hmm. And you don't, you don't have a script. You you kind of have to talk to yourself, right? Like that's kind of how I always envisioned in, in my head. Like I'm having a conversation with myself. Mm-hmm. So what am I going to say to myself? Um, if I had no one else in the room, right? Um, I do have a memory and I forget who the person was, but I remember engineering someone their first time on the air and they literally said on the air, I don't know what to say. (laughs) (laughs) So it was one of those moments. And, and um, I don't, I don't think I had that. I just, I think the allure of being on the air eventually brings you to the air. Right. Does that, if that makes sense. Right. Um, so, and, and you know, I'm probably going to go off a little bit on, on a tangent here, but like what I, what I liked about radio at that time um, was not the polished PLJ sound, mm-hmm. you know, and that's not what I was I was not interested in that at all. I liked more of the, and you'll get this, I think, sort of the late night N-E-W-B-A-B approach. Does that make sense? Yeah, more of a laid back, we're hanging out listening to records kind of vibe as opposed to more of a top 40 sound where you're hitting your, your posts and it's real quick breaks. Yeah. Yeah. And there were a number of people at the station that, that had that. And I think when I started being around them and sitting in on shows where people did that approach, 
I think of Greg Vetter. Hmm. Um, he was like that, right? I, I think he was the first guy who made me think like, hmm, I could do this. I could talk on the air. Why not? And he had, if anyone remembers him, he, and I don't know how else to describe this, but he, he had sort of like this hipster rebel kind of vibe to him, you know, and, and great knowledge of music. <clears throat> and just his demeanor and his attitude, I, I just gravitated towards as an on-air personality. Um, and there were guys like Joe Romano, who I didn't know that well, but same sort of thing, right? Not that he was like a hipster rebel kind of thing, but he brought like a lot of knowledge, did a lot of preparation for his shows. And I like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Will Shelley, another one, you know, like guys like that, those are the people that I, I really sort of um, looked to, admired, wanted to be like that. So, and I think, like I said, I think Greg was the first one to really kind of make me feel like I could be on the air. And if I'm going to be on the air, that's what I want to do. I want to be, take that approach. Um, so does that answer your question? Um, yeah. Yeah. And Greg, you know, this may have been the connection. Greg, I know at one point was the chief announcer okay. yeah. for the station. And I know he was involved with the rock show, which uh, yeah. prior to you taking over as producer, when it was the rock and roll oasis, it was rock solid. That's it. Yep. 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 Okay. So Rock Solid was, uh, which replaced, I think, a New Age show. And I don't know if you were there then. I think Rock Solid was around for about two, maybe three years before we changed it to the Oasis. And I know Greg was involved in that and Joe Romano was involved in that. Yeah. Um, does that sound right? It does. Yeah. And yeah. so so you, you threw out some, some great names there. John Booty, again, one of the nicest people you, you'll ever meet. Yep. Uh, Greg, great voice super knowledgeable. Um, you mentioned Jeff Krause, who else was around then in those early days, uh, that, uh, was helpful or, or pointed, pointed you in the right direction or just, you know, just, you remember being around. Yeah. So like I said, those two really come to mind. Um, another one was, as I mentioned earlier, I was erroneously, named news director at one point. Oh yeah. Um, and I, I, if I'm remembering correctly, I took the role because a, I wanted to have some sort of leadership in at the station because ultimately I wanted to get a heavy metal show on the air. So I saw this as a pathway to doing that, right. Get more involved. Um, just to have more of that pathway to get that thing going. Hmm. Um, and I was into news, I was into journalism, like I was taking journalism courses and I've always been sort of a news junkie, but, um, I didn't know the first thing about doing news on the radio. Um, and I think at that point, really what we were doing was during that five to six slot, whatever it was, um, we designated like 15, 20 minutes to just with solid news. So it was stuff off the wire, maybe some produced stuff. Um, and that's, that was really it, but it, it was, I was not cut out for that. That was Dave Mock's job, right? He mm. was, he was the guy for that. Um, and when I was news director, it was, um, as I mentioned, it was 90, 91. 
there were midterm elections that year. This is when Bush was in office. Mm-hmm. And Sue Zizza told me that you're going to have to produce our local election coverage as news director. And I was like, wait, what? (laughs) (laughs) What am I doing? I don't know the first thing about, I mean, again, this is pre-internet, so I don't know the political landscape of Long Island. I don't really know the issues. I don't know the candidates. I know nothing about producing something of that magnitude, right? Right. So she's like, don't worry. I have a guy who's going to be involved anyway. I'm going to introduce you to Dave Mock. So I meet Dave and anyone who knew Dave, again, theme here, one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet. Mm-hmm. Um, he was, I would say, sort of like that quintessential gumshoe news guy. You know what I mean? Yeah. Um, loved it and, and knew the ins and outs of everything politically within Long Island at that time. So I leaned heavily on him and the two of us put this thing together. And a lot of it was him. I mean, I coordinated stuff and I remember he and I being in my truck and driving to various locations, dropping off equipment for people. And, and um, that night being down at the station that whole time. And, and Dave was the one who was on the air. I was behind the scenes, just making sure people who needed to be on the air were pulled up on the air, checking their, their levels and all that stuff that went into that. Right. Um, but I saw what the preparation that he put into that. Right. And that was the first time I think I really was exposed to what it means to produce something for radio. Yeah. And I took that and look to apply that to what I did with both Whiplash and the Rock and Roll Oasis. Um, And it was just, it was great to be exposed to that and to work with someone who was just as cooperative as he was, was as understanding as he was, thoughtful everything i mean he just was he was the best right and i remember afterwards when the night was over we um one of us had a six pack of budweiser and we go into the the office at the station and sit back and crack open a couple of beers and just talk about the night and what we liked what we didn't and just we got to know each other and that was how i really got to know dave um so i think of him you know he was he was great um you mention unhelpful, and I wouldn't put this in that category, mm-hmm. but you'll see where I'm going with this, I think. Um, as I mentioned, when I got to RHU in 89, there was no metal on the air. I think Airwave played some stuff that probably was better suited for a show like Whiplash, but it went to Airwave. Right. And, and what I mean is like stuff like prong corrosion of conformity i think you guys are playing danzig at one point because of the ties to the misfits but i mean danzig was not airwave it was you know right. that was that was hard rock that was metal um so there was some stuff that was playing being played on airwave but not a specific not a, a a dedicated show to heavy metal so i really wanted to to do that but 
I got a lot of no's along the way. And it wasn't until Denise and Kathy came along the next year where the three of us kind of, this was our mission, <laughs> right? Right. But I remember, you're going to have to help me with this. Um, it was either the station manager or music director. I know the first name was Andrew. Oh, Andrew Schmertz. That's it. He was the program director. That's it. Okay. 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 So it was him. I remember meeting with him about what I don't remember exactly, but I remember he was sitting at Jeff Krause's desk and we're talking and I bring up that I make my pitch. Like I, I, I'd love to get this show on the air. And I don't remember exactly what he said to me. So I'm paraphrasing here, but he did say there's no market on Long Island for heavy metal radio, which was just 100% incorrect. (laughs) Okay. I knew that. I think he knew that. And I I think it was what metal faced a lot back then, which was sort of the snobbery, right? And it was also like, not on my watch, the show's not coming on, right? And he wasn't the only one. I mean, there was other people that would say no to me and to us, you know, to Denise and Kathy as well. It wasn't until Renee came along who gave us the green light to do it. But those people who to- told us no, they fueled us to keep pushing, to mm. get this on the air. So, like I said, it's not necessarily unhelpful, but it, it just fueled the fire, if you will, to get that show on the air. Well, that that time period of the late 1980s, there was still a very, uh, I don't know if this is the right way to put it, negative stigma yes. attached to metal. And, and for that matter, in, in I think to the same degree, but in a different direction, rap music. I think there was there was a there was a social public stigma that like, these are dangerous examples of music and we yeah. maybe don't want that. I think it was that, but I also think it was um, sort of the the comic book aspect of metal at that point. Where, and what I mean by that is, some people may think of metal and think of the hair metal bands, the poison, right. the poisons, and that stuff, right? And and mock it and laugh at it. And you know, I, I I was not a fan of that particular side of metal. I was more from like Iron Maiden, Judas Priest, Motorhead, Metallica, and on. Like that was the stuff that I was into. Right. But nonetheless, I mean, you're right, there was a stigma about it where yes, it was dangerous music, it was gonna harm our kids, it was, you know, gonna lead to kids dropping out of school and smoking pot and just, you know, like all that stuff that was going on. I remember news stories being. And the, the, the Tipper Gore stuff yeah. was just a couple of years before and the, and the yeah. labeling. And I mean, we, we were both in high school, I think when, when Guns N' Roses came out. Oh God. And yeah. I remember there being a lot of concern about Guns N' Roses. Yeah. They were the most dangerous band on the planet at that point. Whereas you know, yeah. the year prior was probably some other band, but you know, they, they were right. Um, so you're right. I, I, there was definitely a lot of that going on. Um, but you know, to be told that there's no market on Long Island for, for heavy metal, I'm like, have you seen the mullets on this campus? Like how many there are, (laughs) you know, like, come on, dude, that's just not true, you know? Mm. Um, but anyway, that's 
hopefully that answers your question. So, so you, you got, uh, the news director job, I guess that was your sophomore year. Yes. But you would, you'd been on the air, I, I assume doing maybe a rock show or, or whatever, or some airwave. When, when do you think you felt comfortable either at the station or on the air or both? When did you go, okay, this is, this is where I need to be. This is where I want to be. Hmm. I've thought about this because obviously I, I knew what the questions were. I, I, I want to say probably by junior year, I felt like I belong here. Hmm. You know, because um, I had experiences on both sides of the board at that point. And like I said, leading up to going to Hofstra, I wasn't necessarily thinking of myself as an on-air personality. So at that point, by 91, 92-ish, I was on the air. I was manning a board. I was producing stuff. So I think, but at that point, I just, the, the wheels were turning. Um, I think whiplash was starting to, to go at that point, or we got mm-hmm. the green light for that thing to go. And so I had that, which I was passionate about along with Denise and Kathy to, to build this thing up. Um, so a lot of devotion to that and uh, as well as the rock show as well. So I, I feel like that's when I really felt like this is, this is my place. Right. And I had other interests too at Hofstra. I didn't, you know, I spent a fair amount of time in that basement office, but I, I, I had other things going on as well. Um, but I, I feel like at that point, that's where I was like, I'm, I'm a part of this. Um, I'm committed to this and I enjoy doing this. Hmm. So, so I'm going to take it from the from the other angle now because we're looking at this through the lens of of memory, and you've had time to think about this. And I'm going to ask you to try to put yourself back in your shoes when you're 18 years old. You've left home for the first time. You're there on Long Island, and you walk into the station with Dave Fopel. And what did you think WRHU would mean to you at that moment? What did you hope for? I I think uh, well I don't know if I really knew at that point I I I knew it was probably the best way to put this was that I I felt like it was going to be one of the stepping stones if you will to my path to getting into music whatever that was going to look like hmm. um, I eventually ended up working for for Sony I spent five years there and so that was great and RHU was a part of that. Um, connections that I made there over time sort of led me down that path to land that job at, at, at Sony. Um, but I think at that point, like I, I viewed it more as, as just, okay, I know where I want, what I want to explore as far as a career in the music business, quote unquote is. Um, and this is part of it. So let's see where this goes. Um, it was also very intriguing. I mean, you, Having interned at a professional radio station, I had a sense of what that looked like. But going down into that basement and being in that office and being in those studios, um, it felt like a college radio station. It just it it had that um, 
that vibe. It was cluttered. It was, again, it was in a basement, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, mm-hmm. um, hidden from everybody else. Um, like I said, the office was, was, was cluttered. It was, I remember the, the music office, which was basically a closet with a desk yeah. in it and, you know, yeah. shelves for, for records and CDs, the stickers were all over it and, you know, that kind of thing. It had a smell. Um, oh, yeah. you know, it, it just, it had that college vibe to it and it was run by a band of misfits, you know? I mean, and that's not a, that's not an offensive thing. It's just, that's who we were. You know, we were just a bunch of kids who were into music or into whatever we were into at that point, but it was the band of misfits being oversaw by this dapper gen- gentleman sitting in the far left corner in Jeff Krause, you know, hmm. um, who had an influence over all of us who got to know him, you know? Um, so he was overseeing his merry band of, of misfits as we were running the radio station. Hmm. Um, so, you know, like, like I said, I, I, I wasn't sure what it was going to mean at that time. Looking back on it now, it's, it's meant more to me than I probably thought it was going to mean then, not from yeah. a career perspective, but from a memory and growing, uh, experience and the relationships that I made. Some of them I don't have anymore, and that's fine, but um, it, it, it was a fun time, and it was a fun time. Um, I remember, I mean, this involved you, I think at, at the height at one point, I had gotten us an interview with Faith No More and Helmet. Mm. Do you remember this? Mm-hmm. I think the Faith No More interview fell apart. I don't remember interviewing them, but I do remember interviewing Helmet. Mm-hmm. And it was you, me, Brett. See there? Yeah, I, I, I think it was, I think it was you and Brett. Okay, yeah, maybe it was the two of us then. I thought you were there, but, um, it, you know, I, we had booked it. We go down to New York City. The that sh- they're playing Roseland Ballroom, and. We bring our equipment and we're, we're backstage at the Roseland Ballroom after sound check, and we're interviewing Paige Hamilton and someone else in Helmet. Yeah. And it just felt like, wow, this is, this is cool, right? This is awesome. And again, this was at the time of crossover music, so Helmet was played on both Whiplash and, and Airwave, so... I think both programs aired the interview. We did, um, what do you call them? Uh, what the heck was it? Um, was there a giveaway or something? No, there wasn't a giveaway, but they, they cut, um, hey, this is Paige Hamilton from Hell. Oh, IDs. Was, IDs, right. We, 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 we cut those for both Airwave and Whiplash. And I just remember feeling like just so good about accomplishing, accomplishing that, right? Because four years before that, I never would have imagined doing something like that. Um, so it was super cool to, to be able to have that kind of experience that not all college kids get to do, you know? Um, so it was neat. And there's probably tons of others that I can think of, but you know, you're asking me to dust off the cobwebs for 30 something years. It's going to be hard to do, but that one really stood out for me. It was, 
It was neat. Yeah. I, re- I remember those IDs. I remember the interview. And, and I think that was, I, I remember you setting that up. And, and I know I wasn't there because I would remember if I was there. But I remember you guys doing that and that being, that was a pretty big deal. Yeah. Yeah, it was. A pretty yeah. big deal. Yeah. John, this was this was fantastic. Um, thank you for, for sharing your memories and, and being part of the historical record of, of Hofstra Radio. Um, start working on some more stories. I'm going to work on some more questions. Let's do this again sometime. Sounds great, man. Appreciate it.